Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Uh, my guest on this, this is a special edition of, of Fangraphs Audio. We're not calling this Prospects with Mike Newman. We're calling this uh, Mike Newman Not in a Box or something like that. Mike Newman, you're there as well helping me with the introduction. I am. I'm going to be here talking with Carson for about 50 minutes or so about prospects, but more how they relate to their big league organizations and We'll be talking some Marlins and Blue Jays trade, some Michael and Andrelton Simmons uh, rumors that had happened and um, why that probably did not happen, along with some other, you know, personal interest stuff like we always do. Yeah, like uh, concerning fires and coyotes in the wilds of your backyard. Yes, and if that doesn't get people to stick around for the entire 50 minutes, I do not know what will. Well, I know what will. Uh, in fact, the attentive listener will note that it is not a male but a female voice uh, that begins this edition of the podcast, and that is Mike Newman's wife. Yes, my wife picks up the phone. Everybody gets to know my wife a little bit, and um, she does not love baseball. Yeah. So any comments that are posted towards you know Mike's wife yeah. giving him a break as far as prospecting and traveling and all that stuff would be greatly appreciated so I can keep doing it. All right. Uh, th- thank you, Mike, for, for helping with the introduction. Be prepared to hear more of Mike Newman on this edition of Fangraphs Audio featuring Mike Newman, which begins right now. Yeah, hi. Hi, how you doing? Good. You, Literally you, just walked in the door. We were doing the whole Thanksgiving shopping thing. Oh, wow. All right. Give me like 30 seconds to run down to my office, and then we're ready to hit record. Oh, oh, we've already hit record. Oh, so you've actually got me like getting ice and my wife picking up the phone. Yeah, this is all this is all gold. This is all radio gold right here. This is radio gold. Yeah. So, so you say. Uh, I say. I'm the arbiter. I'm the decider. So, how are you, Mr. Sistoli? I'm all right. How are you? I am uh, okay. Just keeping busy. have family coming into town today, so um, whether you're leaving or coming, you know how uh, spending time with family can be, can be fun yet frantic and very stressful. I was, I was just thinking constant celebration. I have nothing but love and affection for my in-laws. You know, I am not seeing my in-laws on this holiday, Oh. so um, they are where they live in upstate New York, and we are here, and that is fine, although I do get along pretty well with my in-laws, all things considered, and my wife settling and all. Yes, uh, pretty dramatically, one assumes. I don't know what her options were, but provided she has all, uh, you know, all her limbs, or most of her limbs, it seems as though she's chosen... Poorly, but maybe if maybe she is sort of a uh, out of charity is why she's done it. Is my point? Well, let let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. My boss in my day job mm-hmm. met my wife at a conference recently and proceeded to text me that I really outkicked my coverage. Yeah, I get it. That's a metaphor. It's a football metaphor, but I think we understand it here. Yes, yes, yeah. it's okay. a it's a metaphor for how the heck did I manage that? Yeah, how did you do it? Uh, giving my balding head and. Stocky physique body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good for you. Uh, on all fronts. And good for you as well. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well too. Listen, uh, 
Newman, the, I'll tell you one thing I'm not going to do in this edition of Fangos Audio with Mike Newman. I'll tell you one thing I'm not going to do is put Mike Newman in a box. Well, yeah, Peter in a box is fine. It's just, you know, it's, it's difficult. I spent, you know, I still kind of have nightmares a little bit about scouting the Sally because whenever anybody disagrees with something that I say, they go, well, he's just the Sally guy anyway. And, you know, I haven't totally been that guy in a while since, you know, starting at Fangraphs, especially and moving into the Atlanta area. And, you know, it's good to spread wings and expand on, you know, the things you enjoy talking about. And for me, you know, just talking about A-ball prospects is quite a bit of fun, and we can do that all day. But then again, one of the great things about prospecting and uh, having quite a bit of familiarity with certain organizations is that you can see how those minor league affiliates will um, potentially fill holes at the major league level and, you know, where organizations are weak or strong, where where depth can be identified to maybe deal from. Because, you know, like we saw last week with the Marlins and Blue Jays trade, um, you know, having a pretty good understanding of that organization, you would see that, you know, Marisnik was probably their second best center field prospect, and Nicolino was their fifth best pr- pitching prospect. And the Blue Jays added some elite talent for extra parts. A lot of extra por- parts, but extra parts nonetheless. Right, and decent parts and, and, and maybe a sort of level of talent that, as you're noting, you know, might have been at some level redundant for them. Uh, but w- but for the Marlins, obviously, it was not you know it was uh, enough to extract talent from the Marlins, I should say, and uh, and you know and it was better than other teams had to offer. One assumes. Yeah, I guess you know you you wind up looking at those two organizations, and it's you know regardless of how one feels about the Marlins as a you know evil entity or not, um, the simple fact of the matter is the Marlins have a thin farm system. The Blue Jays have a loaded farm system. And what the Blue Jays sent the Marlins instantly becomes uh, a handful of the best prospects that they have in their organization. And the Blue Jays simply traded from depth and are still relatively loaded and have reloaded at the major league level. So, you know, it, it in some ways it works out for both ball clubs if you completely discount the fact that the Marlins were just trying to shed a whole ton of money. If you're looking at just top 10 in the organizational top 10s, the trade makes absolutely perfect sense. The trade makes, let's see, let me see. If you're looking at just top 10s, the trade makes sense because why? Um, because the Marlins now have a top 10 prospects that are closer to what the Blue, the Blue Jays can put out. Um if you're if you're not even considering what's going on at the major league level for those clubs, right. you know the Marlins added a bunch of depth at the minor league level when they pretty much had um, Yelich, Fernandez, and Ozuna, and then a bunch of not much. So you throw Marisnik in there as a future outfielder. You have Nicolino, who's probably the second best pitching prospect in the organization now. Um, you have um, the Cuban shortstop who becomes their shortstop from day one in an organization that really had no shortstop prospect. So they filled a, a great many organizational holes mm-hmm. with this trade, 
and now have a lot of talent that's under control on the cheap. Like I say, on the surface, from an organizational standpoint, you know, if you look from top to bottom, they've added internal strength in the value of cheap, cost-controlled players. Um, and then, you know, ultimately everybody who, who has read my work knows that I lived in Florida for a number of years. I was there for the first two dumps. Um, and horribly disappointed by this dump, although I can't say it wasn't expected given the history of the ownership. But from just an organizational standpoint, there would be instances where if they didn't have a brand-new stadium, if they didn't just fleece the city, that maybe um, this would make some sense from recalibrating as an organization and setting yourselves up to make another push forward with the future and then filling in some pieces along the way. Right. I mean, I guess it, it's a sort of trade that that you're, one might be more accustomed uh, to seeing or might certainly might understand more if it were July, right? And Yeah. And you had – I mean, the Astros kind of did this when they shed Hunter Pence and they, they shed guys and brought in Singleton. I mean, Mark just put out his top 15 and – Singleton comes from another organization uh, originally, as does Cozart, um, as does a number of their uh, – Carlos Perez comes from another organization. I mean, they have a number of good prospects that have come from other places. I think five, um, five, six or, uh, five to seven of their top 15 were not – drafted by the Houston Astros or signed by the Houston Astros as international free agents. So right. and they had a bunch other of organizations have done this. And they and they had a bunch of major leaguers who were in who had one or two more years left on their contracts. So it made sense. It, it was clear, especially when Lunau showed up that they were not going to be winning anything anytime soon. So you might as well uh, you know liquidate what talent you do have at the major league level because and and again it was always it, it or predominantly it was in mid season fashion where you say, hmm Let's see if we can win, and also let's mm-hmm. see and you know let other teams uh, you know help to identify or give them time to identify what their weaknesses are. I guess too. Yeah, is the I other mean, part. It, like I said, if you take the the ethics out of the deal, and even if you took the timing, which you're absolutely right, you know the timing seems a little bit odd given um, the Marlins' last 18 months and new stadiums and free agent signings and all that stuff, but. Um, you know, as far as reloading the organization with minor league talent, this is not something unseen and and uh, something that hasn't you know happened before. I mean, look at the Red Sox; they unloaded most of their financial obligations to the Dodgers for a handful of guys too. It, it just you know the motivation for I think the Astros and the Red Sox and some other teams that have done this is going to be. The perception is going to be much different than what is the motivation of Laurie and the Marlins. Right, right. And, but, but I guess at some level, what you're saying is, um, for, from your perspective, you know that you're that you're perfectly willing to weigh in um, on the on the you know the Loria ownership and the way that it has conducted um, you know roster construction over however many years um, and how the Marlins have done it generally. But that's not. For the purposes of this particular conversation, that's not your concern. No, no, that's not my concern at all. I mean, we could have another um, entire conversation about that because, you know, I, I do have familiarity with the Miami market and, and the issues that were happening down there when I lived there, and a lot of that hasn't really changed as far as support for a franchise and, 
and the things that are going on down there. I think I have a pretty good perspective because of the fact that I live down there, but ultimately that's not exactly my thing. Um, you know, I'm more interested in how the pieces that were added at the minor league level will um, promote there being a decent organization in the future. Um, the fact that last season through trades they they kind of freed Nate Eovaldi from the Dodgers to just be placed in that Marlins ro- rotation just to see what he can do. Uh, same thing with Jacob Turner. Their deals have created opportunities for guys that were um, playing the up-and-down roller coaster who were good prospects, but they were filling in a 15-day DL stand. Then they were getting sent back down to AAA. And what winds up happening is in a lot of those situations, it kind of deflates the value of guys like A. Turner or any of Aldi. So me, from a, from a prospect perspective, I love to see the, uh, the, the fact that some of these guys are getting freed to just go do what they do. Um, Hecavaria, same way. Uh, Marisnik will open up the season in Double A, and, and that Jacksonville team now that that the Marlins will have, it's probably going to have Yelich, Ozuna, uh, Marisnik, and then you're looking at uh, the potential to see Fernandez every fifth day. Uh, that's a heck of a, a start as far as a minor league team goes. So Jacksonville instantly becomes a must see for me next season, where you know it, it would have probably been. Um, Yelich, and if I was lucky, getting to see Fernandez. So yeah, you know, um, uh, with regard to Ozuna, you know, he's playing in the Dominican, and he's hitting home runs at a considerably faster pace than anyone else in the Dominican Winter League. I was also looking just at his minor league numbers. This is ages 17 through 21, I think. He has averaged 27 home runs for every 650 plate appearances. That's a lot of home runs, especially for uh, you know players mostly teenage years. Well, you know, the thing about Ozuna is that everybody had a ton of concerns about the play discipline uh, when he first started. I mean, he had 21 home runs in, in short season ball, which is pretty unheard of. I mean, 21 home runs and 293 plate appearances, to be exact. But he also struck out more than 32% of the time. So the instant uh, curiosity was, oh, how the heck can this work? Especially when you get a very brief cup of coffee with Greensboro of the South Atlantic League, and then you uh, strike out 37% of the time. Um, so he, he came up to full season baseball, and I, and I think that a lot of people expected him to strike out much more than he did. Uh, they didn't expect the walk rate to be above 8%. And then what he did was in high A, he produced essentially the same season that he did in single A. And while somebody with a uh, somebody might look at that and go, well, he just kind of did the same thing, um, they're igno- they would be ignoring the fact that well, he actually added a year, he moved up a level and produced the same amount. So that means that he's in a pretty good rate now. You know, he very well may duplicate those numbers at Double A, then he very well may duplicate those numbers at Triple A if he goes there. So you know, when numbers drop, you worry. When they increase, you you get excited, but sometimes when they stay stable, like they have for a guy like Ozuna, people just kind of shrug their shoulders and it becomes expected, but that's still a really good season. Here's a question. I think it's pretty clear that at some level there is a relationship between power and or at least at least to how it shows up in the numbers, right? There's a relationship between power and what is perceived as plate discipline. Uh, because, of course, if a player has more power, pitchers uh, will throw more 
uh, of their pitches outside of the zone. And, right. and then I guess what, what happens then is it becomes incumbent upon the batter either to uh, to adjust at some level, right, to not swing at those pitches, to wait for, for pitches he can drive, or he keeps swinging at them, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious for you as a talent evaluator how you – how you gauge this relationship between power and uh, maybe the difference between um, apparent plate discipline and actual plate discipline. Gosh, you, you must have talked to Dave Lorla yesterday because I literally, we, we were talking about Lars Anderson and having the same exact kind of conversation and that, you know, Lars Anderson was considered this, you know, pretty much the top prospect in the Red Sox organization. He had immense power he walked a ton. I mean, it was your case of kind of old man skills showing up very early on. And he walked so much that one who is looking at the numbers and trying to evaluate him as a minor leaguer has, is forced to think to themselves, like, how much better is this going to get? If he's already walking 14% of the time, he's already has an idea of the strike zone, He's already identifying pitches to hit, and he may very well be barreling those pitches right now. You take a guy like Arenado, who we talked about before, Nolan Arenado, who was walking 5% of the time in the South Atlantic League. He was making great barrel contact, pulverizing baseballs no matter where they were. And you go, hmm, well, he doesn't show a ton of power now. But what happens if he learns to wait for his pitches? What happens when he learns to turn on an inside fastball? To me, the guys who have improvement to make that are young in the area of plate discipline project for more power to me than the guys that already have it figured out because those guys that figured out, they're already identifying pitches to hit, and they're already hitting them or not hitting them. Like, where's the upward mobility? In a lot of cases, when I see those types of guys, I don't see much upward mobility in, in terms of tightening plate discipline, getting even better pitches to hit, and barreling more baseballs and seeing more power. Right. So, and, I mean, in some cases, they might already be good. Like, I never looked at Frank Thomas's – I have looked at Frank Thomas's minor league numbers. My guess is that he was doing that in the minors, and then he also yep. did it in the majors. He was, you know, probably the best hitter alive when he was playing. Or mm-hmm. he, he and Jeff Bagwell, because they had almost identical careers in some ways. But – uh, but, yeah, you probably look at his minor league numbers. That's what he's doing already, and then he came up and he was still a beast. But what you're looking at is if you're trying to project improvement, if there if there are guys who aren't necessarily taking those walks, but ha- what that also means, on the other hand, is that they, they have room to improve there. Yeah, I mean, it's what we're talking about. With, with To me, at the lower levels, the strikeouts or the lack thereof mean a lot more, mean a lot more to me. If a guy's striking out um, – a small percentage of the time, especially as a teenage prospect, regardless of where the walk rate is, I keep thinking, okay, this guy's going to have a barrel feel. This guy's going to have feel for contact. And if he's not walking a ton and he's not striking out a ton, then you know what? Maybe there's a chance for those walks to start to, to tighten up the strike zone to where if he's already got good feel for contact, then maybe that's going to turn into more power turn into better pitches to hit. Um, you know, uh, sometimes I don't even like to see a guy that posts huge walk numbers at the minor league level because, to me, it just if I see a guy and he's 
being so ultra-selective already, and at that point he's not showing a ton of power, you're forced to wonder where's the power going to come from. Mm-hmm. It's forced to come from a player physically, and there are limitations to how big and strong everybody can get physically. It's called genetics. So you're oh, yeah, leaving genetics, it up right. to genetics yeah. where you want it to be uh, a combination of physical maturity and tightening up strike zone, plate discipline, becoming a better hitter. Maturity of approach, generally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, listen. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the, th- the three pitchers that the Marlins have acquired in the last, I guess, six months at this point. Uh, from um, let's see. Well, of course, from uh, from Toronto, they've acquired Henderson Alvarez. Mm-hmm. From uh, from the Dodgers, that's a trade that sent Hanley Ramirez to Los Angeles. They've acqu- they acquired Nathan Ivaldi. Ivaldi. Yep. And uh, from I guess from the Tigers, uh, this must have been in the uh, the Omar Infante trade and yes. Anibal Sanchez trade. They got Jacob Turner. Yes. Now, in acquiring those th- three players, have the Marlins cornered the market on pitchers? whose arms tend to be more impressive than their stats. <laughs> they very well may have, but <laughs> you're still looking at a, a scenario where these guys are really young. Uh-huh. Um, I, I didn't really think, even though that Turner was ranked as the top prospect in the organization, that he was truly ready for um, pitching in the major leagues when he was brought up. And, you know, he battled some arm injuries and, and things like that, and now he's kind of stabilizing, and we'll see what he does in a full season. And, and Eovaldi was the same way. I mean, I, I saw Eovaldi multiple times when he was with AA uh, Chattanooga, when he was being called up and then sent back down and then called up and sent back down again. And I liked Eovaldi. I mean, there, there's a lot to like about a guy that can get it up to 98 with sync, that can break off a slider, but he was still pretty rough around the edges. You know, for me personally, I would have liked to have seen him spend the entire year this year in the minor leagues, um, having not even made his debut yet. But need creates opportunity for these guys. So, you know, you and and Henderson Alvarez too. I mean, he was uh, 22 this year, and he had barely he hadn't pitched that much above the double A right. uh, before 2011. So. The timetables for all three of these guys were pushed up, maybe from from what they should have been. So, in looking at that, you can say there's room for growth, and maybe that we haven't seen these pitchers at what they will be or should be, and give a little bit of leeway there. Do you, if you were, if is there a pitcher who so? It, we say if we say if we pretend maybe that they're uh, targeting pitchers uh, whose arms are sort of more impressive than, than their the numbers they've produced. Um, who do you think uh, would be uh, one or two other pitchers that they would target, and then we we could verify that this is actually the case. <laughs> is Garrett well, is Garrett Richards on that list? Oh gosh, you know I haven't seen um, enough of of Garrett Richards to make that assessment. Uh, on him. Um, let me think about guys that I've seen this season where where the numbers didn't match up. I mean, you know, if you're looking at two big names, I mean, these are two top, top prospects, but I think if you're talking guys who have underperformed their arms, 
Trevor Bauer would be a guy that comes to mind for me, and you could hear, you could, you see that he's being brought up in trade rumors now, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of disappointing because he's a very good pitching prospect. And uh, but, but anybody that saw him quite a bit should know and probably did know that he was going to come up to the major leagues and he was going to struggle some um, with his approach. There's, there was just, it was bound to happen. Um, you know, you, you get called up, you make adjustments. And then the, the one perplexing guy for me this year was uh, Danny Holtzen, because I've seen him a couple times, and I like Holtzen quite a bit. And his walking the park in AAA and having command problems in AA shocked me. I, I did not expect this to happen with him. But, you know, when I saw him during the season, he was a different pitcher than the guy that I absolutely went nuts for prior to the 2011 draft. What about, uh, where would Julio Tehran fit on this list? You know, Tehran's an interesting guy. He's a guy that I saw in 09, 10, and 11. And I almost, I I took for granted this year that he was like an hour and a half away from me. And I I didn't make the trip out there to go see him for whatever reason. Um, To my understanding, he was working on a lot of things this year. Uh, working on some command issues, command things, and uh, secondary offerings, and that the um, Braves are still fine with his progress. That even with the struggles this year, that were admittedly surprising, um, that he's fine. And he is one of those guys that you can point to and go, "Boy, his stock has really dropped." But I guarantee that within baseball itself. Um, that the the people that are evaluating and that are watching him every fifth day uh, would have a much different opinion than somebody would who's just looking at the numbers. Okay, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Now, well, I want to talk about um, another uh, another Braves prospect, or at least. Uh, a Braves player who who was a prospect entering 2012, and that's Andrelton Simmons. Uh, there was recently an instance, and I, wait, I'm bringing this up, but you're the one who said you wanted to talk about it. So so please uh, don't let me put you in a box, Mike Newman. That's the entire theme of this particular. Is, it, uh, is that going to be the title? It is. Mike yeah. Newman, it's going to be Mike put Newman. Him in the box. If it fits, it's going to be Mike Newman. Uh, either specifically or decidedly not in a box, or maybe just. That's uh, Mike, Mike Newman not in a box. Mike Newman should be in a box. Mike Newman should be in a box for for the protection of all the ladies out there. At, but at, yeah, after my Kachini piece, I think Red Sox fans would like me in a box. In a box. Well, very, we can talk about Chiquini too. Ground. But we were we were you and I were uh, discussing what we might dis- we were discussing what we might discuss. It was a very meta conversation. And uh, but one thing you mentioned was, hey, what about Alt Simmons? Uh, I guess so far as prospecting. Uh, analysis goes. It's sort of a uh, sort of a headline sort of topic that I guess, uh, if I'm characterizing it correctly, uh, recently I guess within the last week or two, uh, to the Texas Rangers offered Mike Olt, power hitting third base prospect Mike Olt, to the Atlanta Braves for shortstop Andrelton Simmons, uh, slick fielding shortstop. I think I'm mm-hmm. okay in saying that. Uh, with the idea, I guess of then flipping either Simmons or one of their other shortstop types 
sounded like Simmons, like very clearly Simmons to be flipped. Okay, uh, right. So flipping him to uh, to it uh, to Arizona, Arizona. For, for Justin mm-hmm. Upton. Yeah, you know the interesting about that to me was, uh, regardless of the players, you know, it's another situation where the Rangers were essentially trying to deal from depth to gain more depth and then flip Simmons. You know, Olt is tough in, in with the Rangers because there's quite a bit of his value that comes from being a very good defensive third baseman. It just so happens that the Rangers may have the best defensive third baseman in Adrian Beltre, depending on who you talk to. So, you know, you could look at Alton and go, okay, well, he plays first base, which kind of negates some of his value. And then he spells Beltre, which helps him, which helps Beltre stay healthy, allows him to DH a little bit more and um, be in the lineup. I mean, there are some good things that come from that, but Alt does lose value at any other position other than third base because there is defense mixed in with the fact that he does strike out quite a bit. The average may not be that great. Uh, he will hit for some power. He will walk some. Um, but his star power comes in, in his glove and his power. And you take one away, and that hurts him quite a bit uh, on the field as far as what he's worth to the Rangers. So they were looking at Simmons with the Braves. But the thing with the Braves is that if they deal Simmons, who plays short? you're then forced to look outside the organization to bring in a shortstop because you don't really have one other than Pastinicki, and that um, that pretty much fell in space. So, you know, like I said at the beginning, one of the things about being familiar with an organization from the, the bottom up uh, allows you to see, like, there really is not another shortstop option other than Simmons in that organization other than... Nick Ahmed, who's going to be in double-A this year. And there's no guarantee that he's a starting shortstop at the big league level. So that kind of deal made absolutely no sense to a team like the Braves, who could simply slide Prado into third base and then focus on acquiring an outfielder. You know, they have a lot of options that they can take here. Yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, this might be a simple thing to say, but I'm not sure if I've ever said it out loud, is that uh, acquiring an outfielder, if, if you just have to acquire one outfielder or one third baseman, you, you'd probably want it to acquire the one outfielder because that you have more selection. Yeah, I mean, the Red Sox got Cody Ross for a song, and he was pretty darn good. You know, the Reds got uh, Ryan Ludwig for a year, and he produced 25, I think, home runs. Uh, you can find uh, lightning in a bottle with an outfielder. It's, it's harder to find a third baseman because that position is just more thin. You know, the other interesting part of this was from the Rangers' perspective. Um, By them trying to acquire Simmons to flip him should let everybody know how valuable the baseball industry thinks Elvis Andrews is. Um, On the outside, I hear a lot of people that talk about Andrews and, and, and how he doesn't hit for a lot of power and he's not a great hitter and, but every contact that I've spoke to in the industry says, without a doubt, he is the best defensive shortstop in baseball. Uh, regardless of the defensive metrics, uh, people in the industry think he's number one. And, I mean, that's the reason why we had that dynasty draft, and I picked Andrews uh, 11th overall. 
Um, there's a ton of value in a four-win shortstop that's 23 years old and should be a four-win shortstop for the next eight to ten years. Um, I mean, he really is a phenomenal player and one that is underrated across baseball, and especially with the Rangers because they have Josh Hamilton, they have Kinsler, they have Beltre, they have um, pitching, uh, they have Darvish. You know, they have so many good players there that in some ways he gets overshadowed. And then Profar. I mean, I, I spoke with a contact who told me that they would not trade Profar for Justin Upton one for one. Period. Yeah, that, I mean, that that's, he's just that awesome. Yeah, and, right. I mean, that's interesting. But Profar. I mean, is Profar? I don't know if this this might be a moronic question, but I'm going to say it. Does, is Profar ready for the major leagues right now? If he's not ready, he's really close. And the Rangers are in a pretty good situation because, to me. I mean, as as great as Josh Hamilton has been, I don't know if you give that type of guy uh, a bunch of years, given his history, especially with the injuries, uh, regardless of some of the personal issues. I mean, he has been hurt, and he, you know, at times his body seems older than it actually is. So when you're when you're looking at that and you have a loaded minor league system you have the best shortstop prospect in the game you have An- andrews who's the, the one of the best shortstops in the game you have kinsler who's one of the best second basemen in the game you have leonis martin who you paid a bunch of money to uh, to get out of cuba who profiles as a pretty solid all-around outfielder and you have kinsler who recently has had quotes out there that he wouldn't mind moving positions in the best interest of the rangers and it brings me back to a conversation I had, uh, I think while I was watching Trevor Bauer even, uh, with a scout who said, you know what I'd do if I were the Rangers? I'd let Hamilton walk. I'd stick Kinsler in center field. I'd play Profar at second base. Andrews at short. Problem solved. And oh, yeah, that's very interesting. With, that's very interesting. With Kinsler's quote that he would be open I, I want, uh, to, to moving positions, I wonder if the Rangers would be evaluating, you know, what could happen there. That is interesting, and and we've seen uh, we've seen players do that before. I mean, th- there seems to be something natural. I, I'm sure you know. Obviously, it's going to depend on the player's specific skill set, but something natural about mm-hmm. moving from that uh, that middle infield area uh, to center. I mean, of course, uh, the, you know that's that was B.J. Upton's route. Uh, we've seen Billy Hamilton uh, move to center field recently. Craig Biggio mm-hmm. later in his career moved to center field. Uh, it, it doesn't and, uh, seem entirely unnatural. Knobloch, I think, played outfield in college and then wound up at second base. So there is kind of a yeah a pathway right going and, back and of and course forth between center field and, and second base right 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 yeah and then Chuck Knobloch happened later in his career too yeah I, I think that now I, I don't I don't mean to defame the man but I think that uh, he was caught recently maybe a, a drunken Chuck Knobloch hitting on some college girls on the subway somewhere and and you're gonna say that as if it's a bad thing yeah. <laughs> I think he didn't. I think that uh, he may be. Well, why do you think we watch you so closely in Arizona? <laughs> Luckily, there's no subway there. Although I guess they do have light rail. Uh, uh, yeah. So I was actually going to ask you about Nick Ahmed or, t- or Pastor Nicky, uh, maybe just to talk about them briefly. You don't think because because mm-hmm. because last year it almost seemed like, or at least the Braves were painting it as a real competition between Simmons and Pastor Nicky for the starting shortstop job. Uh, it seems like what you're su- suggesting now is that's, that that's not really the case at, at this point. 
Well, you know, there are a couple things with that, and I've written about this at, at Fangraphs, and I had a piece, I think, at the beginning of the summer that about Pasternicki taking one for the team, and the Braves were in a tough spot to, to start the season. I mean, Simmons hadn't played above high A, and Pasternicki just had a great year in double-A, triple-A, but that good year, a great year, didn't create a ton of, like, true believers. Everybody that I talked to still was calling him a utility player. I mean, I thought he was a utility player, potentially a second-division shortstop for a period. So there was nobody that was really convinced that this guy was anybody's shortstop of the future. But if you're the Braves, what do you do? Your shortstop of the future isn't quite ready. He needs some double-A time. He needs some, some more time at the minor league level, or else you risk uh, stunting some of the offensive growth he may have. Um, and you have a guy who produced well in AAA, who had a, a great year in AA, who looks more like a utility guy. He's not really fooling anybody into really aggressively wanting him to be their shortstop of the future. You say, what's the path of least resistance? What's going to do the least harm. If we think Pasternick is a utility guy, what does it matter if we play him some there now or we play him some there later? If he's a utility guy, his floor, his ceiling is going to be so limited, his floor is not probably not going to be hurt that much, whatever, throw him out there. Mm-hmm. Where Simmons had much more to lose had the Braves forced him into the shortstop position. Additionally, the Braves didn't have a lot of money. So what are they going to do? Go out and sign a shortstop for one year? I think shortstops last year on the open right, I mean, for call got quite a bit. And I think he got a multi-year deal. Um, shortstops were not cheap last winter. And I don't think they were in the position or wanted to pony up four to six million for a stopgap. So the Braves did what they thought was the, the best thing to do. And, um, I don't know if Simmons would have had such instant success had he started the year in Atlanta. And what happens if he starts off for two for his first 42 and you crush him offensively at the big league level? It just was not worth the risk. It was pretty well played by the Braves, especially considering they made the playoffs anyway. It, it didn't really hurt them in any way. And, and it was pretty gutsy considering what had happened the year before. I want to uh, – now, because uh... – well, this is not very interesting maybe for our listeners, but uh, today is a travel day in the Sestouli family. Uh, we, we are uh, making a journey uh, to my in-laws' house. It's actually a two-day journey uh, because they live nine hours away. So we're, Where is that? Uh, it's going to be northern Michigan. Northern okay. Michigan up near Traverse. And you can't make nine hours in one trip? Well, uh, we could, uh, but we've rented a car, and we have some friends in Chicago uh, that we're going to spend some time with. So it's, uh, I see. Yeah. I, I would stay in Chicago for the night too, but – I was gonna. You don't I was gonna live make fun Chicago. of you, considering yeah. that we make my wife and I make like a biannually seventeen-hour drive with three kids and three dogs in the car. Yeah, but that sounds miserable. That sounds that sounds miserable. Oh, it's hell. Yeah, it sounds like it. The, uh, but so I said today's a travel day. Uh, we should probably um, end the podcast soon. But I want to say, I want to ask, uh, at what at what points have you come nearest fisticuffs? Uh, with with uh, other prospect analysts, other Fangraphs prospect analyst uh, Mark Hewitt um, during the composition of his top 15 prospect lists. I think he's done five of them now, including the Astros, uh, mm-hmm. and then 
alongside of that, you've pro- you've provided um, some uh, some very helpful additional notes. At what points have you come closest uh, to fisticuffs with our with our Canadian friend? You know what? Here's the thing. Um, for me, I'm just trying to provide additional information to the lists. Mm-hmm. The nice thing is that while I know what the top 15 is going to be, I have absolutely no idea what Mark is going to write mm-hmm. about these players until it goes live and I get to read it like everybody else. So my additional notes are not influenced by him at all, mm-hmm. and I think his work is already done by the time he copies and pastes my additional notes. So it's truly two different views. Mm-hmm. And if J.D. Sussman or one of the other prospect guys chimes in as well, I, I'm, I keep trying to get you to chime in on guys that you've seen, but you refuse to do so. Um, hey, hey, Newman, don't put me yeah. in a box. Don't. I'm going to put you in, in that box and, and call you out for the public to see. Because I know that they would want to hear what you have to say on Marlins and Cardinals and other prospects. They hear see. what I have to say a lot, uh, for example, via via, via podcast. Um, okay, so that's... So, so what we, you're don't saying, we, we don't fight. We don't fight over it at all. You're, um, you're allowed... So you what know, you're saying is you're allowing the reader... To triangulate, which is the which is the best thing you can do if you're trying to, you know, to, to reach some conclusions, some tentative conclusions about prospects in this case. Yeah, I mean, Fangraphs is a place where you know everybody expects to probably receive the most information, whether it be through data or something else. And we have the opportunity to provide some unique perspectives with the, the prospect, I guess, team that uh, we have in place. It, it just so happens that you get out and see guys, and Dave Lorla goes out and sees guys, and as does J.D. and myself. And um, we have the opportunity to provide some, you know, unique perspectives in addition to what Mark um, brings and, and who he talks to for his pieces. So yeah, I think it's been working out pretty well uh, so far, and I've been happy with how those have come. Yeah. Hey, listen, uh, before you go, will you, will you help me do the introduction? I will help you do the introduction, but you keep cut, cut me off. Uh, you didn't even let me tell you about the fire. Okay, all right, fine. What do you have to say about a fire? Every time, the very last segment is me telling you about, like, stuff. Well, you, was a forest, um, we, you said there was a forest fire of some sort. Yeah, you know, last Sunday we had adopted another dog, our fourth dog, which is exactly what we needed. Yeah. And the, his fourth night in the house, he starts barking in the middle of the night, and we had, we just wanted him to shut up. We wanted to sleep. It was like 2.30 in the morning. Yeah. So after telling him to be quiet a little bit, I finally got out of bed to use the restroom. And on my way to the restroom, there's a double, you know, big double window over the bathtub that you can look out into the backyard, and we border forest. And I look out, and there's this huge ring of fire all through the woods. Like a Johnny Cash song. Yeah, like 30 yards by 15 yards. Uh, The first thing, you know, you're half asleep. I'm like, there's a satanic cult in the back. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, lighting fires and and then so, all, oh right and also uh, there's a satanic cult and also a fire so that's two yeah. things you have to worry about now yeah 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 but there wasn't really a satanic cult it was just a fire oh okay uh, although it was a pretty big fire and it was like creeping into our yard and uh, stuff like that so this hero dog that we had just adopted mm-hmm. you know the kids slept I the the family was sleeping mm-hmm. our other dogs just slept through it. And this one dog was waking us up. Hero dog. What's your new dog's name? Uh, bear. Bear. That's a good. Yeah. Now, uh, what do you do at that point? I, I, I would start just, I guess, weeping and crawl into the fetal position. Is that what you did? 
Well, I got my wife to mm. call. I woke her up. Yeah. And told her that the yard's on fire. Yeah. And of course, you know how that you know a wife would respond to that. Yeah. And so I got her to call nine one one and and woke up the kids and wanted you know to, them to get ready to to leave if they needed to if it got really out of hand. Yeah. And I ran out into the backyard with my pajama bottoms on. I threw on a jacket and took my yard hose out there and started to spray out fire that was getting near our yard and under our fence. So in about five minutes, the fire department, um, great fire department, showed up yeah. and helped put out the forest fire. But what wound up happening is it was 2.30 in the morning. Three, at this point, it was 3.30 in the morning when the fire was out. And every 20 minutes or so, you'd see it like start up in the woods again. So every 20 minutes, I was running outside with the hose, like spraying down a, a spot. So, Wait, the, so the fire department has already left at this point? Fire department's left. They're done. They just said, you know, it shouldn't be a big deal if anything tamps up or fires up. We, we pretty much have it contained. But, you know, what are you going to do if, like, a fire lights up in your backyard again and you just saw this fire? You're going to run out there. So I proceeded to run out every, like, half hour or so um, with my fire hose, spraying out sections of fire and burning ambers and stuff like that but it was a pretty scary experience and you know how i'm your, from the city how's your so, uh, so, homeowner's insurance you, is that your policy up to date yes our policy is up to date good um but you know what wound up happening is we think it started in the compost pile being from the city mm. i just don't think i turned it as much as i should and it combusted. It gets warm in there. Yeah, it gets very warm in there. It 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 combusted and started a fire. Look at so, you. Look at but that. But everybody was safe. Everybody was good. I got to play fireman in addition to Fangraph's author. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it everything worked out, but it was a pretty hairy experience. And uh, then the other thing is I finally got to see the coyotes that I thought were getting into my yard. At this time or a different time? It was like two days before. I was just sitting out, sitting, watching, looking out into the woods, enjoying a cup of coffee and writing a little bit. And I looked outside, and something just came over our hill. And it was a this gorgeous, probably 50-pound coyote. Um, beautiful, beautiful animal. And then about two minutes later, its pup came following behind. My goodness. So, yeah, it was pretty, it was very um, ominous. Super cool at the same time because I'd never seen one of those in person before. I hope it never comes back, but I, I hadn't. You seen liked it at person. the time. I will say when uh, I think after our most recent coyote discussion, I did a little work, uh, a little Google image searching for coyotes, images of coyotes on the mm-hmm. internet, and I came across one that was uh, right, both cute and harrowing. It was a picture of a coyote that had not only boarded but fallen asleep on uh, on a. Um, like a train in Portland, Oregon, like part of their uh, their system, their metro system. Oh, yikes! Yeah. yeah. Well, if you if you were to Google search coyotes, you'd see some like really squirrely looking ones. Mm-hmm. But this was one of those like big, beautiful, majestic coyotes that almost looked like a wolf. Majestic coyote way. situation. Yeah, it was just a gorgeous, gorgeous animal. But you know, in some ways, I'm happy to have a young, spry dog when I go out and hike in the woods now. Yeah. Um, I don't think I would ever have anything to worry about, but uh, especially when I bring my kids out into the woods and stuff like that, you just never, 
never can be too careful with the stories that happen in that crazy California with coyotes trying to drag off like two-year-olds and stuff like that. Yeah, although, uh, I mean, you got, what, three kids, so you lose one. That's no, I mean, two out of three, that's not bad, right? Get yeah, them, I mean, that would still leave us. Well, that's one of the reasons why, in a morbid way, my wife really wanted three. Like, when mm-hmm. we had two, I was done. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, But we knew people who had had three and had uh, horribly lost a child. Yeah. But, you know, there was still the camaraderie of, of the two, and they had each other. So, you, so my wife and I were, you know, she's just like, someday something's going to happen to us. And if we have three and heaven forbid something <laughs> ever happens to one of them, they, the, the, the two that are left will still have each other. So she didn't want any situation where. So do you tell your youngest that she's the extra? No. Jeez. Now, she'll probably listen to this this podcast one day and be horrified. Yeah. But, you, you know, no. I mean. But then she'll grow up uh, to be a parent and she'll understand. You know, ultimately, I, I mean, I was an only child, so mm-hmm. I really like peace and quiet and solitude. Yeah. And the screaming and the yelling that is having kids fighting mm-hmm. all the time is something that is completely foreign to me. Yeah. I mean, my wife is used to it. She had a brother. Anybody that has a brother or sister is probably used to the fighting. Yeah. Um, but me, it was like I was just by myself, and it was quiet, and, you know... I couldn't imagine having three kids, but now three kids is great, and yeah. you wouldn't want it any other way, and she's already talking about number four. Oh, my. So, well, yeah, listen, uh, uh, yeah, let's <laughs> let's let you get uh, get started on that, uh, but first, let's oh, do goodness. the introduction. You're, are you ready? Are you ready, Newman? Yeah, who, uh, yeah, let's do it. We're going to do it right now. It's Herb Alpert and the two one of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Uh, my guest on this, this is a special edition of, of Fangraphs Audio. We're not calling this Prospects with Mike Newman. We're calling this uh, Mike Newman Not in a Box or something like that. Mike Newman, you're there as well helping me with the introduction. I am. I'm going to be here talking with Carson for about 50 minutes or so about Prospects, but more how they relate to their big league organizations. And uh, we'll be talking some Marlins and Blue Jays trade, some Michael and Andrelton Simmons uh, rumors that had happened, and um, why that probably did not happen, along with some other, you know, personal interest stuff like we always do. Yeah, like uh, concerning fires and coyotes in the wilds of your backyard. Yes, and if that doesn't get people to stick around for the entire 50 minutes, I do not know what will. Well, I know what will. Uh, in, in fact, the attentive listener will note that it is not a male but a female voice uh, that begins this edition of the podcast, and that is Mike Newman's wife. Yes, my wife picks up the phone. Everybody gets to know my wife a little bit, and... Um, she does not love baseball. Yeah. So any comments that are posted towards, you know, Mike's wife yeah. giving him a break as far as prospecting and traveling and all that stuff would be greatly appreciated so I could keep doing it. All right. Uh, th- thank you, Mike, for, for helping with the introduction. Be prepared to hear more of Mike Newman on this edition of Fangraphs Audio featuring Mike Newman, which begins right now. Most professional work. Thank you. I like professional work. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, you got to have me on more often than every three weeks. Blah. Feel, well, you know, now we we got to fit Kylie McDaniel on the podcast too because he's been doing some good work for us uh, on the front lines, uh, various uh, instructional camps, etc. Yeah. Yeah. What you cutting into my time, Sistoli? Hey, don't look at me. Look at Kylie McDaniel. 
that Irish bastard. When, I, when's Kylie coming on with you? Uh, I don't know. We got to, uh, because we have the Thanksgiving here, so, uh, sometimes sooner than later, I think. We'll try, we'll get Okay. On. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's hey. fair. Hey, listen, it's been a real pleasure, Mike Newman, and I'll get this, uh, posted ASAP. Always is, man. Always is. Have yeah. a wonderful holiday and a safe trip, and I'm phenomenally jealous that you're passing through Chicago. Yeah, all right. We'll stick around for a second, but, uh, first we'll say thanks to Mike Newman, our, uh, prospect analyst from the Great American South. Uh, I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.